Hey, this morning is October 15th. It is Sunday morning. Our message is Colt 45. It's funny when I say Colt 45, huh? Some of you just thought of Billy D. Williams and a certain consumption of grain, maybe distilled grain. Others have thought about a pistol in the Old West. I would guess that my father, watching by Internet and Baton Rouge, thought of the pistol. You know, he was a gun collector. When you say Colt 45 to him, he thinks, wow, a single-action Colt. He had them in our house growing up. I think of Billy D. Williams with his slick back hair going, Colt 45 does the trick every time, whatever that meant. How many of you have read the Beatitudes in your life? Right? Boy, we all know what the Beatitudes are. Oh, by the way, I want to tell you before I get into this message, next week we have a guest speaker all the way from the second row named Nicholas Slaughter. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Uh, we're looking forward to great things in Nick's life. And Nick and Lindy have got a baby on the way. Isn't that all? Yeah. That means Nick will be gaining weight and Lindy will be glowing. <laughs> okay, back to Peacemaker. You've read the Beatitudes, right? Haven't you? Yes. Okay, good, because when y'all don't talk to me, I get my feelings hurt. In all reading of the Beatitudes, we forget a very, very important point. We're to be those attitudes. Boy, isn't it easy to say, Blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs are the sons of God. You know, Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Right? And we can quote the, the Sermon on the Mount, we can spit out the Beatitudes, and yet when it comes time to be those attitudes, we have a problem. That's, uh, that's something I want to talk about this morning. You know, my emphasis in this church is always on performing out there what we've practiced in here. It's always on being sure of the Word and not a hearer only. But the last couple of weeks, we've talked to you about a kingdom. I told you to define kingdom of heaven is the king who is in heaven's dominion. And Jesus didn't say the kingdom is far away. He didn't say the kingdom is somewhere where you will go at some point when you die. He never taught that. That is absolute wrong Greek heresy. Well, I'd say, well, Eric, golly, heresy is such a strong word. If it puts your hope in something other than what Jesus preached, John the Baptist preached, and the twelve apostles preached, then it is wrong, no matter how well-meaning people are that preach it. We tend to think, because of our years of churchianity instead of Christianity, we tend to think of the kingdom of heaven as a place where you go when you die. As much as... You will be with the Lord present in His kingdom when you die. That is not what the gospel teaches. John the Baptist came preaching, the kingdom is near you. Jesus came preaching, the kingdom is near you. He sent out the twelve with that message and the seventy-two with that message. And I taught that two weeks ago in a message called dual citizenship. And what did it mean when the kingdom is near you? It meant that the king's dominion is something that you're being presented with in your life right now. You can choose while you're on the earth to walk in His kingdom. It starts inside of you. It starts in your heart. Then, the next week, the message was cut the mustard. Yeah, I come up with crazy titles, I know. And it was about the kingdom of heaven being like a mustard seed. Although it starts small, insignificant, easy to step over and not notice, it grows into something large enough to provide shade for people. Something that would be useful and bear things. 
I taught you out of Daniel that it was like a rock that you could just walk right by except it was growing into a mountain that would fill the whole earth. I taught you about those things. There's a kingdom on the earth now that is supposed to grow. Well, this week we're going to talk about some principles in the kingdom. The principle of the cult 45. The peacemaker. One of the ways you know whether or not somebody is a citizen of a certain country is by how they act. What laws do they observe? What are their customs? What are they like? And often we see people saying, I am Christ. I am a Christian. I am Christ-like. And you see no kingdom principle in their lives. Instead, what you see is the kingdom of this world operating them. Although Jesus said, if somebody slaps you on the left cheek, turn the other cheek to them also. The kingdom of this world says if somebody slaps you, punch them. You know? If somebody takes your spot at the lubies, hate them. The kingdom of this world says if you look at a woman lustfully, hey, nobody knows but you. <laughs> the kingdom of this world has a whole different set of principles than the kingdom of God. To the extent that we walk in the dominion of the king, we are walking in the kingdom. And friends, he's coming back for a people that are walking in his kingdom. He is both the foundation, the cornerstone that you measure everything by, and He is the capstone at the top. He's laid the foundation. He's shown you how to measure your lives, how to walk according to His principles, what you should be doing. And He is coming back perfectly fitted on the top of the building that has risen in Him, built according to the pattern that was shown. This is why the prophecy this morning from Mandy about imitation comes out of the Word. Paul laid a... a foundation as an expert builder. Nobody can build on a foundation other than that one. In other words, there is a set pattern. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. There is a pattern of the gospel because the king is coming back for a specific people group, a people who have accepted his dominion in their lives, a people who bear a resemblance to him and that he can be the crown on their heads. That's what he's coming back for. So don't you think it's important that we learn to understand the principles of the kingdom then? Or we could be content with what the rest of the world is. I'll give you all donuts, coffee, a gymnasium to play basketball in, and a gift certificate that says you are saved and will always be saved. That'll make you feel great inside and could send you to hell. I was there, I know. I sat in a church service living no kingdom principles in my life until 1993. I won Bible awards in my school because I had a decent memory. And yet I was brawling in parking lots and involved in all kind of other things that it's not even fitting to talk about. doesn't matter. What matters is there were no kingdom principles in my life. And some bold guy who didn't fit the norm, his name was Don Babin, who had a church that used to be a strip club, came and preached in sandals and blue jeans and said, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father. In other words, only those people who are serious enough about God to actually perform His will will make it into the kingdom of heaven. I read you last week about Luke 13, 20. Is it true only a few are going to be saved? Yes, it is as you said. Boy, everybody get out your black highlighters. Mark that one out. We don't want to hear that. Give us some greasy grace. Give us some sloppy agape. I just want to feel good. I'm a champion. There's a champion in here. That's what we want to hear, isn't it? That's not to disparage that message. I want to tell you the truth. Devin is a champion. But if that's all I ever tell Devin, what do you think he'll turn out to be? Probably not the champion. Saints, it is time to take this thing seriously. You want to hear about Colt 45, the one that does the trick every time? It's to be a peacemaker. 
Let me read these Beatitudes to you. Matthew 5, 1. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. I don't want to give you the entire background here because you'll get bored with me. But Ezekiel foresaw a day when a man anointed by God would sit on a mountainside and teach the people of Israel. When all the hirelings who had simply taught for their own benefit and fleeced the sheep would be run out. When a true shepherd from God would sit on the mountains of Israel and teach the people of Israel so that they could be properly fed would come. And now this is being fulfilled. Jesus is sitting on a mountain in Israel, running off the hirelings, teaching the truth about God that is the true bread from heaven. His disciples came to Him and He began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. My God, I've read this for years. I went, Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that mean? You know, except we never say what that means. Okay, especially if you're standing behind one of these things. Because in America, this means... I am above reproach. I'm behind a pulpit. I am beyond contestation. Big me, little you. Right? Yeah, my name is Eric. You spell that with a big I and a little you. (laughs) Yeah, you ever heard somebody? Anyway. This is not the case in the Gospel. In the Gospel, you did not stand on a stage behind a pulpit. In the Gospel, you stood in a synagogue in a hole beneath the people in the church, or synagogue rather, the gathering, And that was to show the guy who is teaching you this is supposed to come from the most humble place on the planet. Not somebody who's better than you. Not somebody who's more righteous than you. Somebody who's simply anointed for this task. Like Gabriel might be anointed to drive a nail. Or Matthew might be anointed to fix electrical things. People were anointed. That means divinely enabled by God. And the man who read the Word had to stand in a position of humility. How different is that from us today? What do we do? i got a four-inch stage in here. But most churches have a four-foot stage. Lift them up! Lift them up! Let's put somebody up there that we can all hold up as our example. He better be good-looking. Sorry I disappoint you in that area. He better speak well. He better dress nice. Better have a certain kind of family. In fact, what we want is a cookie cutter, man. Something we can model our lives after. We get the king we so desired. And so what if he turns out to be like Saul? We'll look the other way. We'll put a board over him to govern him because we don't really trust him to hear from God. We'll give him rules that he has to preach instead of hearing from the Spirit of God. We'll grade his performance and vote him in or vote him out. Saints, it was never supposed to be this way. Jesus taught as a good shepherd on a mountain in the fields in Israel. He had no seminary degree. He had no letters of recommendation from people. He simply stood on the authority that God had given him and he never begged anybody to listen. This is who we pattern our lives after. I'm not asking you to sit here because of my great learning. I'm not asking you to sit here because I think my life is something that you should imitate in every way. There are parts of my life you would do well to imitate and there's parts you should ignore with everything in you. I'm working on them. This is life-changing ministries that extends even to me. It's changing every day. I'm growing to be more like God. And at 31 years old, there's only so much I can achieve. But give me time, because I won't quit. Jesus began teaching, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'll show you what that means later, but I want to read right this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they inherit the earth. 
Now, come on. Can you see somebody with the last name Dollar standing on TV with thrones behind him and weird purple-haired people? Looks like a Christian circus back there telling you, standing right next to Jesus, Blessed are those who are praying and getting money. Blessed are those who have nice suits. Do you want that drug dealer's car? You can have it in the kingdom. Name it and claim it. This is the anti-gospel, friends. Jesus to you and tells you, give up everything you have to follow Me. I'm worth it. The anti-gospel says, follow God only so that you will get. It's greed, greed, greed. I will never tell you about the things that you'll get for following God. That's the wrong motive. I'll tell you simply, seek the kingdom and you'll get everything that you need. You do not hear in the messages that Jesus preached to drive a Mercedes-Benz every day on TV. American gospel is not the gospel of the kingdom. The reason I'm harping on these things the last few weeks is because I am trying to drive a nail in a very hard stone. All of our lives we've been fed misconception and disinformation by the enemy. And there's going to be a limitless number of who will do it for security, for reputation and prestige for the title pastor of first something or another. This was not the message that Jesus preached. And I don't care if we meet in homes. I'm blessed here today. Pastor Jim and his wife, Paulie, are here. They have a similar vision. They're starting a in their home. They've started in their homes. Been there since January. Pastor, don't you get discouraged. Don't let people look down on you. What you have is like a pearl that you should sell everything you have to go and obtain. And the truth is, people have thrown away that to go obtain everything. The anti-gospel, it is wrong. Well, how can you talk about those people? That I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about the system that conforms them to the image of this world rather than Christ. I'm talking about the heart that says, why would I want them as a friend? i got enough friends. That is not Jesus. I don't care who says it's Jesus. That's not Jesus. This is Jesus. He's teaching kingdom principles. And His followers lived them to the point where they wouldn't shrink back from it even when it cost them their lives. That you know and love and respect live their lives for the principles of the kingdom, you need to warn them once, then twice, then have nothing to do with them. Paul told Timothy that. Boy, we don't practice it though. You know what we do? We coddle them. We deceive ourselves and say they're good people. We honor them. In some ways, give approval to the very things that they do. Don't do it. Doesn't mean you're harsh. In fact, I'm going to tell you, you had to be a peacemaker today. That means that you are honest. Love is honest. Love means that whether or not I think Steve is the most awesome thing on earth, which I pretty well do, I will tell him the truth at all costs. That's love. It is not dissent. It is not rebellion. It is not wrong to speak the truth in love. In fact, the Bible says, hidden love. An open rebuke is better than hidden love. Where is that practiced? Well, who am I to say that? I'll tell you who you are. You are people of the kingdom with the king's dominion in you. Don't you be intimidated by people with pedigrees. Don't you be intimidated by people with stained glass and temples that have not the anointing of God. Don't do it. Back to the message. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The kingdom of God is being set up on the earth. 
we are not going to another planet called heaven. This was a fairy tale that the Catholic Church gave the Reformers and Reformers never let go of and is every Sunday here. here. But here in America. The meek will inherit the earth. The kingdom of God is being established on the earth. Father, hallowed be Your name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth. When's the last time you heard popular Christianity even talk about that? Jesus taught it. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. That does not say blessed are those who simply ascend intellectually to the principles of the church. That does not say blessed are those who simply accept creed. Blessed are those who have agreed on the same lies. You have to hunger and thirst for what God is beyond all other things. You have to hunger for Him at the expense even of your life, your friendships, your relationships, your financial security, because that's what trust in Him is. This is real Christianity. You will never find Jesus turning while He's walking, going back and saying, oh, please won't you follow me. Please, I'm worth it. It'll be fun. You'll be blessed. It'll be great. Better roses. If it gets trouble, I'd... Well, I'll fly away. You don't see that. You know what you see? Jesus look at people and say, if you set your hand to the plow and turn back, you're not worthy of me. If you love your mother and father more than me, you are not worthy of me. That's what you see Him teach. He was revolutionary. He was radical. And the people who started off in a protestant, protestant reformation, raging against the machine that had controlled the church, that had smothered the church, the wolf that had eaten the lamb and put on lamb's clothing. They were radical in their day. They stood up on pain of death against the most powerful forces on earth. And today they've become tame little kittens that hide behind their doctrines in their nice churches. It's not supposed to be this way. You're supposed to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. In my Christian walk, the fiercest persecution I have ever received has never come from outside the church. The lost have never looked at my life and gone, oh, you're worthless. How can you teach that? You meet in a garage, shame on you. You hang out with who? Those do you know what those people do or did? I never had lost people say those things to me. It's to the church's shame that that kind of attack always comes from within the body of Christ. Friends, if we don't show mercy to other people, if you don't extend to people the same unconditional love and mercy that you've received, you will not continue to receive it. I didn't say that. God said that. That will do away with judgmental attitudes. That will do away with holier-than-thou, pharisaical, twisted attitudes. Everything we do has got to be laced with mercy. Well, what about you, Eric? Listen to the things you're saying about these people. Get this very straight. I'm not talking about the people. I'm talking about the system that churns them out like butter. There's hope for the people. There is no hope for that system. There was no hope for the Roman system. There's hope for a priest. There's hope for a Catholic person. But there is no hope for that Roman system. It's of the wrong spirit. Oh, well, that's easy. We can all stand here as Protestants and point at the Catholics. Friends, examine the Protestants. 
system and see how far it is from the message Jesus preached. There's hope for the people. That system is fatally flawed and it is destined to die. It is not what Jesus taught. Say, well, is what Jesus taught in there? Yeah. Yeah, you can find life in anything. God is good like that. It's a starter kit for real Christianity. Bobby's here today. Bobby bought me when I was a little boy a mariner's cross. Anybody ever seen one of those? Steve, I bet you have. Being on ships all your life. We had this guy that worked for him named Billy Milges. And Billy was funny. I mean, he... Big, jovial, red, fat guy. And, Lord, I hope Billy didn't... Well, I want Billy to get this one day. Maybe he's skinny now. <laughs> Billy said, uh, what you got? got a Mr. T starter kit? That <laughs> <laughs> was about Judah's age. Most churches have grabbed on to a principle that is good. They know Jesus is good. They want you saved. They know salvation is a blessing. But they kind of camp at the birth canal. You know, once the baby crowns and you're born, they have no idea what to do with you. There is no discipleship. Their Christian witness training is simply, oh, here, learn the Roman road to salvation. Here, here, here's five Scriptures. Now go corner everybody in an elevator and tell them about this. How absurd. You show me an example of Jesus doing that. He said, go forth and preach the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is near. You know the best way to preach that? Jesus called you to shine your light, not be a loud speaker. Let people see that you live in the kingdom while on the earth, regardless of the circumstances. You face death, you do it with a smile. You face the loss of your loved ones, you do it with a smile and with a hope they don't have. And people go, my God, that's the kingdom. And they will want what you have. That is the kingdom message. This is what Jesus said. That's why He said, look, I don't want you to go out with money. I don't want you to go out with souls. I want you to go out simply two by two. I'll read you about this later in Matthew 10. He disadvantaged them from the beginning so that people would say, my God, they got no money. they got no sword. But they live in the kingdom's principles regardless of what they face. Why do you love Paul the way you do? You love him because he overcame all for sake of the kingdom. You don't love him because he had a nice suit, a big airplane, and told you you could be rich. Yeah, it's silly, isn't it? I feel stupid having to stand up here and say this, but it's all you will hear when you turn on that box outside. Not all you will hear. There will always be a remnant. There will always be people railing against this because God's kingdom is being established on earth. It's just men who corrupt it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. I'm going to come back to that one. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Say the kingdom from heaven. You might even be able to get away with saying the kingdom that is in heaven, as long as you understand that the goal is for that rule that is in heaven to extend its way all the way to the earth and envelop it. God will be all in all. His authority will be recognized on the earth the same way it is in heaven. That's what Corinthians 15 is teaching. And by the way, that's what Paul said was the gospel he had taken his stand on. Not 15, 1 through 5, the whole 15th chapter. You'd do well to read it. Familiarize yourself with it. I want to talk to you today about the Colt 45, the peacemaker. Turn with me to Leviticus 6. Blessed are the peacemaker. They will be called sons of God. Tell me when you're in Leviticus 26. 26. 
Yeah, I'll misdirect you every chance to ensure that I have some reasonable chance of getting there around the time you do. Leviticus 26. Huge problem in the church that I've talked to you an awful lot about that is not the American church. It's not just the Protestant church. It's all churches from about 200 forward. Is as the Greek influence started to come into the church in greater and greater numbers, and Romanism began to dominate the church in such a way that it became the official religion of Rome, something happened. To be a Jew became very unpopular. The idea of deicide, that, that somehow the Jews killed God, began to grow. All of the church fathers by the year 300 were Greek and not Jewish. There's a problem with that. The New Testament flows right out of the Old. This revelation from God is one contiguous revelation. The 39 books of the Older Testament flow right into the Newer Testament, and this is proved by the fact that the New Testament constantly quotes the Old. They saw no division. No, there were no seven divisions in church history at this point, or in the salvation plan of God. There were no ideas of dispensations. This was all Greek thought that came much, much later. And one of the problems with that is we now have the gospel in Greek because the world spoke Greek. We now had church fathers who were Greek-oriented, uh, had been more influenced by Greek culture than Jewish culture. This robbed the gospel of much of its original meaning. It robbed the gospel of much of its original intent. And when the Bible said, blessed are the peacemakers, or blessed are the poor in spirit, how on earth would the audience have interpreted those things? They would have interpreted them based on what they had already been told about God. But how would a Greek interpret it? Well, you get out a definition book, a dictionary, you look up the Greek word and say, what is a peacemaker? What is peace in English? Come on, y'all can talk to me. What do you think peace is in English? Lack of fighting, the absence of hostility. Thank you, Cass, bold one. Step out there and speak. That is not what peace is in Hebrew. I want to read to you. This is a good definition of peace. It's the kind of thing that derives the idea of what the Hebrews call shalom. 26.6, Leviticus 26.6. I will grant peace in the land. I will grant shalom in the land. And you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. We're going to read a little bit and this whole concept is their concept of what peace is. First off, you're going to lie down and nobody's going to make you afraid. I will remove savage beasts from the land, and the sword will not pass through your country. There will be an absence of hostility between you and the animal kingdom, and there will be an absence of war. You will pursue your enemies, and they will fall by the sword before you. How's that peace? According to God, it's peace, and I'll teach you why. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. You will look on your I will look on you with favor and make you fruitful and increase your numbers. And I will keep my covenant with you. You will be eating last year's harvest and will have to move it out to make room for the new. I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. You know what abhor is? It's to intensely hate. <laughs> I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. The Hebrew concept of shalom is a sense that everything in your life is in its proper order with God. It's the sense that there is 
perfect harmony, not lack of hostility, but perfect harmony between you and God. Therefore, your relationship with your fellow man is in complete harmony with God's will. That means that those who He wants to be your enemy are your enemy. There are people that God wanted the people of God to have enemies. What did He tell Joshua? Go in and kill every person there. That is a God-ordained enemy to perform a godly task. We'll get into New and Old Testament ethics some other time. Suffice it today to say He's the King of the dominion and He has the right to run one nation out of another if that's what He wants to do because He's God. The idea of peace, according to Leviticus, is a sense that all is right with you and God and your fellow man. That's what shalom is. So what do you think it is to be a peacemaker? That implies some effort, doesn't it? You know? I was a Baptist kid at one point in my life, and I'd just been born again, and I did what we Baptist kids did. Went to go play softball. Right? We had the best softball leagues. And I was invited by uh, one of the pastors in the church. And at first I was very flattered. <laughs> I thought, oh, he must love me. He must want to spend some time with me because he knows that I'm a new convert and I need to be discipled. Then I sold the team. And I realized... He invited me because I'm bigger and stronger than all of these other men because I can hit a softball further and outrun most of them. We didn't make it through the fourth inning and a fight broke out between two Baptist teams. And the pastor's son, who had invited me, was fighting with somebody not on the other team, but on his own team. And the words that were coming out of his mouth were just like the speech I used to live in before the kingdom. And I was shocked. I walked over and I grabbed him by the neck and the other gentleman by the neck and put them apart. My concept of peacemaker at this point in life was the absence of hostility. I thought that's what being a peacemaker was. Simply being an arbiter between two people. Now the truth is, at this point in my life, it was a wonder that I stopped there. Not very mature in the kingdom yet. Gabriel told me this morning, you know, it wouldn't hurt, Eric, every now and then if you talked about where you came from. Because you guys see 13 years of refining by Jesus here. But the truth is, at that time, I was very tempted to take on the team and whip them all, and I might could have done it at that time in my life. But Jesus was being formed in me. I would not have had a sense that all was right with God and my fellow man in doing that. More than that. Say, oh, Eric, that was a peacemaker. You separated two people that were fighting. Did they leave with peace? No. They hated each other. When the one called the other an MFing something or another, that was not peace in his heart. And it didn't go away just because I didn't allow them to pummel each other. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemaker. They are sons of God. Let me teach you something about this. To be a son of God meant something. In Hebrew culture in the first century, you would say somebody is a son of Hillel. No, they're not. They're sons of Shammah. These are two houses in Israel that taught teaching about the Old Testament, Older Testament, the only writing in life they had about the Torah. And when you were called the son of something, it meant that you were a disciple of it. In other words, 
Everybody knows that my influence is strong in Judah's life. He's my son. He better be a chip off the old block. He ought to in some ways reflect his father. Well, Jesus said that to be a peacemaker, you would be a son of God, a disciple of God, a chip off the old block. This means that God is in the peacemaking business. This means that what God does is make peace. Well, is that just the absence of hostility? No, peace is shalom. This is the earth. Are you all amazed with my artistic ability here? Okay? Y'all just think about that for a minute. The earth. I'm going to get back to that, I promise. We're going to take the most familiar Scripture to you in all of the Bible and talk about the earth with it. God is in the peacemaking business. While we're thinking about that, I want to show you an example. Turn to Genesis 43. Not of God being in the peacemaking business, but of how a Hebrew saw the word. By the way, when you go to Israel, you step off of a bus, right? Typical American tourist. Have on your Jesus Loves You t-shirt. Ham sandwich. Looking for any Jews you can find, hoping to point them out by their physical characteristics, right? Looking for bankers' hats. First thing a Jew will walk up to you and say, who is being polite, is shalom, peace. It's become a greeting. It was a blessing they were taught to give. You know what it meant? When I say, shalom, Charlotte, she says, and shalom. This is my wishing for her that all would be right between her and God and between her and man. My wishing that the establishment of the kingdom of God in her life on the earth would bring to her peace. This is what it was. You know how she would respond? Shalom. This is both hello and goodbye. It's the greetings. Because it is your wishing for your fellow man. You remember what the angels told the shepherds? We bring you good news. Peace on earth and goodwill to man. Shalom was supposed to come to the earth as the kingdom of God is being set up. The only exception to that is our people that oppose the kingdom. No peace there. In Genesis 43, I'm going to read you just one quick thing, hopefully. 43:27. What we have is we have Joseph, starting 26, who is coming to see his brothers during the time he has become the great man in Egypt, and his brothers are on their second trip. When Joseph came home, they presented to him gifts they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. He asked them how they were. What an innocent English phrase, right? Brothers, how are you? What's the thing? We can't repeat it on tape. Devin put something on my MySpace page that is another vernacular for that. We say, hey, what's up? Depending on where you're from, you might add some other words to that. It's what Joseph is saying to his brothers. Except that that's not what he said. In Hebrew, you know what you say when you say, how are you? How's your peace? What I want to know when I ask Brad in Hebrew, how is your peace, is Brad, is everything right with you and God? Is it well? Are you experiencing prosperity in the kingdom? Wealth, spiritually speaking. Health. Are you feeling God's reign in your life? Are you experiencing His kingship? And is that extending to your fellow man? That is what that means when he said, how are you? Why would he ask his brothers that? 
He's just put them in the most turbulent position in their life. They think they're going to have to give up Benjamin. But that's a whole other story. He put them in a position to have to live out the kingdom principles and then ask them, how's your peace? How are you doing? Every time you see the words in English, how are you doing? How is your father who is aged in years is the next line? He said, how's your father's peace? This, in, this culture caused an expectation on the earth that when Messiah came, He would everything right in the heavens and on the earth. They said, Jesus, Jesus! Except they didn't. They said, Yeshua, Yeshua. How do we pray? And He said, hey, I want you to pray to the God of heaven about His kingdom being established on earth. This is because their expectation was that everything would be set on right, right on earth the same way it was in heaven. Do you see what a difference the culture makes? If I walk up to you and say, how's your peace? You're like, dude, I'm not fighting with anybody. Who told you that? Somebody tell you that we were fighting? <laughs> That's not what... Their expectation is totally different. Turns me to number six. I want you to see the ironic blessing. Some of you know this by heart, but I'm going to read it to you. If you don't know it by heart, it'd be a good one to learn. Ironic blessing, number six, verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, This is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace. What God is looking for, the blessing that you're hoping, when Aaron prayed for people, was that their life would be right in the presence and face of God. Actually, the word showbread in the King James Bible comes from the same word as face. It's poneum. And what it means is that you are fed being in the presence of God as in His face. That's what it means. And what this ironic blessing is, is as I pray for Bobby, I'm praying that God be so close to him and him so close to God that God's countenance would actually start to show up in Bobby. This is why these people glove sometimes in the Old Testament. It was to show that God's character was being impressed upon them. They had been close enough to His presence to reflect Him. What is supposed to happen in the church? You're supposed to be close enough to Jesus to begin to glow with His presence and reflect Him. What else does He say? And that His peace would be upon you. His shalom. I want you to have the comfort of knowing that there is Perfect harmony between you and God and the creation and everything in it. This was the blessing that was supposed to be upon people. You watch people empty from a church parking lot. Tell me that there is shalom there. That lady gave me the finger leaving a church parking lot. We caught the same gas station. Who's your pastor, lady? Whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean? There's a Bible on your dash. Who's your pastor? I want to call him and tell him how proud he should be of you. Well, I, I, <laughs> yeah, you hear something you don't like in church. What do you do? Find another church. We're Americans. We don't have the kingdom of God. We got the Burger Kingdom. We want it our way. We establish our own little dominions. Well, this is how I am. And this is what I believe about God. And my God wouldn't do that. And my God wouldn't do this. Well, what I believe about God is with total indifference to what the Word says. We raise up for our pa ourselves pastors who will tickle our itching ears and reinforce our wrong ideas. In fact, we agree in advance 
before you even walk through that door on the 16, 14, 12, whatever it is, things that we have to agree on to be in here. These are the indisputables. Don't you dare challenge them. Because that would make me uncomfortable and I might have to grow. might be like tilling or aerating the soil or pruning the tree. What cowardice! You show me that in the Bible. What incredible yellow-bellied cowardice is that? I will only associate with people that believe exactly what I believe because I am horrified that I might be challenged. What incredible yellow belly Christianity is that? How do you grow in your life? You grow when people shove something right in your face that you don't like. And you go back and you examine it and you find out, is that true? Could that be right? I'm certain he's not right. And you read and sometimes he was right. And sometimes he wasn't. It's your responsibility to do that. The books that I like, the people in my life that I admire, that I look up to, are the ones that will stand and say, Oh, brother, I see you're full of zeal. You certainly believe what you're saying, but that doesn't make it right. Because it causes me to rethink. We're not an island ourselves. We cannot be unapproachable, uncorrectable ourselves a disservice to sign a treaty with each other about areas we simply won't discuss. Every time somebody talks about that and coverings. You know what a covering is? Covering is a treaty that we're all going to agree with this. We're all just going to lay this aside. It was decided in the fourth church council and so it is. Well, what if they were wrong? A bunch of old dead guys to start with. Is it so wrong to think that in the last 2,000 years of Christianity, there might have been some revelation that somebody in the 4th century didn't have? I mean, isn't it a mustard seed that is growing into a big tree? In the kingdom of God expanding on the earth? Is it not possible that we might know something that Martin Luther didn't have? So what do we do when we say, I am a Lutheran and I refuse to accept anything outside Luther's doctrine? You condemn yourself to what a man in the 16th century had revealed from God. And by the way, that man's life was founded on the fact that a man could receive more. That's what he fought for. So you might even say it's an insult to a man like Luther to only accept what Luther taught. Or Calvin. Or anybody else. It's hard for me to even mention those guys. They all did well. They ran like champions in their day. But we don't serve a God that calls you to run like it was yesterday. Oh, yeah. That dude was a hero in the fifth grade. Man, you should have seen him run that football in the fifth grade. In the fifth grade, he was unbelievable, unstoppable in the fifth grade. Today he's 42, but when he was in the fifth grade, he was wonderful. <laughs> oh, yeah, what a hero. Rambo. Turn with me to Psalm 34. I guess I better pick up the pace here, huh? We'll stay in the Psalms for just a second. Have y'all noticed that every time we read something in the New Testament, we read ten things out of the Old? Y'all noticing that about me? That'd be something that would be good for you to imitate. Lots of things in my life you shouldn't imitate. I leave it up to your discretion to decide which is which. But I lay my life out there for you to see it all. Don't hide any area of it. I will never hide any area of it. You know why? It protects me. It protects me to be an open book before you where you can say, you know, page two and three are pretty good, but four you might want to work on. If there ever gets to be a place in my life where that's not the case, 
then I'll turn into what everybody else seems to be, a hireling. I won't do it. Won't do it. And the reason I keep saying these things on tape week after week is because it's your job not to let me. Somebody said, is a church like a dictatorship? No, it's a theocracy. We're all completely submitted to God. We just have different roles. One's role might be to prophesy. Another's might be to teach. Another might be to preach. And yet a third might be to pastor. So I thought preaching was pastoring. Not by a long shot, friends. I can stand up here and preach, but if I don't care about you in your daily life, that is not pastoring. I can preach and 10,000 people love to hear what I say. That is not pastoring. Pastoring is helping you through the mud in your life. Removing burrs from your fleece is not entertaining people by your speech. Otherwise, Robin Williams would be a great pastor. Right? Y'all in Psalm 34? I bet we got time to read it all. Even if we don't have time to read it all, I figure I'll put Matthew between you and the door. I almost made a joke at your expense, Matt, but I'm not skinny anymore and I can't do it. When I was really skinny and Matt was still a larger guy, I could say, I must decrease that he might increase. But can't do that anymore. He gets skinnier than I am and I keep getting fatter. So we're still clinging to the fat belongs to the Lord, though. Wonderful thing about being a preacher is you learn to justify anything that you want to justify. I'm speeding, and I mean speeding. Yeah, yeah, in a car, badly. Don't you think you ought to slow down? No, baby, Elijah tucked his cloak in his belt and outran the chariot. She said, you know, I don't think that applies. I said, well, we're not bound by the law. You know, I don't think that applies. Hold on, let me see if I can think of another one. You know, one time threatened to write a book about that. You know, all the Christian excuses to do what we know is wrong and want to do. Guys, I'm not immune to this stuff. And when I'm railing against all the other churches, it's an indictment of me as well. When I talk about American Christianity, understand something. I am an American Christian. I'm not talking about everybody else. I'm talking about us too. It's just easier to put it in the third perspective. And then towards the end of the message, to look at you and say, now I'm talking about you. And you think, who, them? No, no, you. Y'all have seen me do that, right? Nick? Psalm 34. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Wow, I thought we were all supposed to walk in perfect, perfect health and prosperity. Well, apparently not in David's day. They were still afflicted. And he was going to rejoice in the affliction so that they would see it. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. Who's He talking to? The afflicted. Glorify the Lord. Let us exalt His name together. You mean in our affliction? Yes. That is the kingdom. The kingdom looks and says, wow, I'm being afflicted on every side, and yet I will glorify the king because his kingdom is within me. So I don't know if I can do that. Well, you need to decide if you want to be in the kingdom. So, well, I, I can't do that. I'm weak. That's okay. He'll provide strength. That's a whole different issue. I'm talking about ability, I'm talking about desire. He'll provide the ability. That's what anointing is. God's divine enablement. I thought I forgot about the earth, huh? promise I hadn't. Let's inflict it here. I sought the Lord and He answered me. He delivered me from all my... Quit saying scared. Quit talking about what you're afraid of. Quit going, oh, I'm scared to be alone. Or whatever it is you're scared of. If you're scared of things with big teeth, the dark, or werewolves. Doesn't matter to me. Quit saying you're scared. That is a lack of trust in your king. Your king has delivered you from your fears. 
I've got little bitty kids and I don't let them say it. Every time they say it, I say, oh, wait a minute. God's still king. God will work through your parents. God will protect you through us. What are you? We're going to trust God, Daddy. That's right. If you're going to fear, fear me, I will beat you. No. Those who look to Him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. I want you to hear that. Faces are never covered with shame. That means if you've got a hundred Pharisees looking at you from first something or another, pointing their finger down at you, how could you smoke a pipe? Never mind that their greatest theologians smoked pipes. How could you wear those clothes? Jesus wore something that looks to me like a dress. How could you wear your hair like that? How could you do whatever it is that they're pointing? You refuse to be covered with shame. If you are in the king's kingdom, who are they to tell you how to dress, how to act, how to live? That's the king's job. You remember the 14th chapter of Romans? It says, who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master does he stand or fall? I was recently in a meeting at a certain student ministries where they attempted to exert their authority in my life about what I should or shouldn't teach and where I should or shouldn't teach it. I had trouble not laughing out loud. They don't have that right. doesn't matter to me how many buildings they've built or how great they think they are. I answer to one person, and that's God. And I've made myself accountable to other people, like you guys, to keep me in check because no man is an island. Who is my covering? My covering is Jesus Himself and the men and women He's ordained in my life. And the least in my church should be able to correct me. And if there's a day that I cannot receive that correction, it's a day that I better get ready. God will remove His anointing from me. Happens. promise it does happen. But I'm going to strive with all my heart for it not to happen to me. I love the next verse. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. Y'all go ahead and take out your pen. Let's go ahead and rewrite the verse how we'd like it to be. This wealthy and contented man, living a life of, life of ease, called the Lord, and the Lord saved him from all of the troubles. That's not at all what it says. This poor man called, and the Lord saved him. How? Out of all of his troubles. I want you to get this. We serve a God that will plunge you right in the middle of total chaos, right in the middle of the most desperate and harsh situations on the whole planet. He allowed His original twelve apostles to all die. 100% mortality rate. John, they had to try to kill a couple times. Apparently a tough old bird. They boiled him in oil. It didn't work. You know? God will deliver you out of your troubles. Not from them. Not without ever touching them. He delivers you out of them. That is a kingdom principle. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him, and He delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children. Listen to me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever who loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and from speaking lies. There's a whole message there, but I won't do that. So turn from evil 
and do good. Turn from evil. That word is teshuba. It means repent. Change your course. Pick a different direction. You are on the wrong road. Seek peace and pursue it. You need to seek in your life the feeling that is all is right with you and God and you and your fellow man. And it will try to evade you. And you will have to pursue it. Blessed are the peacemakers, the peace pursuers. It's a difficult word to translate from the Greek in the New Testament. They all agreed on peacemaker and now that's the consensus. But both words imply extreme effort. Blessed are those who forcefully pursue peace. Remember Matthew eleven twelve said, forceful men lay hold of the kingdom. Luke sixteen sixteen taught about people forcing their way into the kingdom. A kingdom principle is that this shalom comes through force. Now I want you to think about this. This is totally different than what you would normally think. What is peace? Oh, it's the absence of hostility. I can't say that to Claire. I can't say what needs to be said to Claire because that would cause hostility and we're supposed to be peaceful. That's exactly the opposite of what the Bible's teaching. The Bible's teaching, I must say that to Claire or Charlotte, Bobby or whoever else. I must seek peace. I must pursue it. I must get this right with God and man. One teaches cowardice. The other teaches loving confrontation. Loving confrontation. You say, well, I don't know about that, Eric. Watch Jesus' life. Did He avoid saying things that were hard for people to hear? Not at all. Jesus was a peacemaker. He formed it. He fashioned it by correcting what needed to change for people to be right with God and with their fellow man. You're praying at an altar. What does the Bible tell you to do? If I have a problem with David, what do I do? I leave my gift. Where? That's an important Scripture. No, I'm kidding. Keep your gift there. I leave what I'm doing and I go get it right with David. You know why? When there's a problem between me and another man, it's usually indicative of a problem with me and God. In Genesis 3, there was a problem between man and God. What happened in Genesis 4? One man's killing another man. When there's a break in shalom this way, it causes a break in shalom that way. So what do you do? You go get it right, shalom this way, and then shalom this way gets right. Another way to say that Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, said, if you build a wall between you and your neighbor, you've built a ceiling between you and God. What do you all think that is? That's a cross, right? Shalom is this representation. It's vertical. Peace between you and God. And it's this representation. Horizontal. Between you and man time you see peace in the Bible and peace I give unto you and if you go into this home let your peace rest there you're talking about perfect harmony with you and God and your fellow man and it comes by way of the cross we're going to talk about that cross in the earth in just a second I want to read you one more thing just to give you an idea of where some more beatitudes came from because we're talking about peacemaker but I'm going to show you two more beatitudes real quick Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. So Jesus just loves everybody. Wrong, saints. 
That is a wrong, wrong, wrong teaching. But wait a minute. John 3.16 says... Come on, somebody. What's it say? Well, then Jesus loves everybody. Wrong. The Bible teaches He hates the wicked. John 3.16 says He loves the what? World. But wait. He loves each person and hates what they do. Wrong. Not, not at all right. It's all been taught to us in church. Not right. We'll teach on this another time, though. God hates those that He calls wicked, and the Scripture says it. Time, in fact, go read Psalm 58 sometime. I'm not going to tell you what it says. You go read it and come back and tell me what your interpretation of Psalm 58 is. David says he's going to do something with the wicked. I want you to read that someday. By the way, David often prayed, break the teeth of the mouths of the wicked. Lord, crush their hairy crowns. Bring them down to the grave. But God loves them. No, not right. You want to be accepted by God? You need to first accept His message. You know where the idea God loves everybody comes from? A right-thinking principle. It comes from this. God will accept anybody who will turn from their ways towards Him. He does love the world. I'm going to show you in just a minute what peacemaker is the world. First, one more beatitude though. Verse 17, The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Brokenhearted, crushed in spirit. You know how you'd say that if you were speaking Greek? Poor in spirit. That's where you get that beatitude. Poor in spirit. They're blessed. Every one of these beatitudes comes directly out of the old canon. Every one of them was a principle already applied there. None of this is new thought. So when we're talking about peacemakers, you need to understand... We're talking about this from a Hebrew perspective, which is peace is pursued. It's sought after. You have to force your way into it. It does not come through passivity. It comes through action. You understand that? Move on to Psalm 85. Now, while you're there, let's go to Psalm 37 real quick. I'll only read you one verse there just for fun. You can mark this one make a footnote. But the meek will inherit the land and they will enjoy great Shalom. Jesus was not inventing a new thought when He said the meek will inherit the earth. He was quoting the Word that He was. You know what meekness is, by the way? Meekness is being perfectly submitted to God. Those who are perfectly submitted to God will inherit the earth. Period. You got that? Okay. Keep turning. Psalm 85. Can you all bear with me just a little longer? Yes. you all have the time to bring this to conclusion or do we have to get at Luby's to fight with the denominationals? That's right. I'm cooking outside right now. Y'all in Psalm 85? Tell me about it. Who's there? Brad, are you there? Brad is there. If Brad is there, then we can move on. Psalm 85, verse 7. Tell him, brother, there'll only be a few who will follow. Only be... <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I want you to understand something. If you've been taught that Jews receive salvation by obedience to the Ten Commandments, you were lied to. The Bible doesn't teach that, never taught that. That is what Western Christians believe about Judaism. It is not true. What did he just say? Grant us. In other words, you might say it was unmerited favor, an act of grace. Salvation has always come the exact same way. And it was from God granting it. It was never through legalistic righteousness. Real Judaism never that. 
There was a perversion of it that Paul corrected, but that is not what the Tanakh taught. Tanakhs, the 39 books. I will listen to what God, the Lord, will say. He promises peace to His people, His saints. But let them not return to their folly. Hmm, a warning. Surely His salvation is near those who fear Him, that His glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. There is a relationship between your credited righteousness and your shalom. You get credited righteousness as a byproduct of your shalom. Your trust in God gives you the sense that everything is right with you and God and everything is right with you and your fellow man and we call that righteousness. How were you taught to define righteousness? Being in right standing with God. Do you see the relationship between righteousness and peace? The Scriptures taught it. It's always taught it. It's not the absence of hostility. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth. I want you to get this. As faithfulness springs up, what's that next verse say? Righteousness looks down. God is looking for a response from you. He's looking for a response that comes from your heart. What is faith? It's trust. As your trust for the Lord begins to show itself from the earth, He pours His righteousness down. That's how the Gospel teaches this. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good to our land and it will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before Him and prepares the way for His steps. God is looking for a people who are faithful, trusting of His kingship, and that prepares the way for Him to return at our head and set everything right in heaven and on earth. Turn to Psalm 119. We are moving towards a close, but I have received a correction from a sheep that I love that said, quit apologizing for going long. So you receive no apology from me today. We are simply going long. And if you want to leave... It's okay. Claire will tackle you at the door. i got a new bouncer every week. That means you all strategically position yourself too close to the door. Except in this church, we don't bounce you out. We bounce you in. I don't believe the church ought to put people away. I think that is another enormous act of cowardice. Did I say that enough today? What cowardice is? You all getting that? You think I feel strongly about it? You have no idea. <laughs> you want me to tell you real quick what one more kind of cowardice is? You want to hear that? Yeah. P-Rose giving me the, the caution. <laughs> one more kind of cowardice is to really want to talk to me. Really have an issue with me. But take it up with somebody else because you don't want to face me. You know what I'll do? If I sense that in any one of you, you know what I'll do? I'll bless you because I will come find you. <laughs> Let's just remove the burden from you. Let's put you in a situation where you don't have to pick up the phone and call me. I'm going to make peace, which means I'm going to force my way into a situation and allow there to be a chance for everything to be right between me and God and me and my fellow man. But Paul said live at peace where it is possible. It's not always possible and you have to learn to accept that too. There are going to be some people that just don't like you because they never took the time to get to know you. Psalm 119, verse 165. Great shalom have they who... Come on now. Great shalom have they who... Love the Torah. 
I thought it was bad. No, you have great peace when you love the righteous character revealed of God in the law. And nothing can make them stumble. I will wait for your salvation, O Lord, and I will follow your mitzvahs, your command. Well, I thought they were saved by keeping the law. Is that what that says? No, not at all. It says, I will wait for your salvation and I will do what you say. God, I wish the church would imitate that. I will wait for you to save me and I will do what you say. Well, that's just an Old Testament thought. Then why did Jesus say, go baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey? Why does Romans 1.5 say that there is an obedience that comes from faith? Why does the Scripture teach that to obey is better than sacrifice if we simply need to believe? What a lie. And how many people has it ruined their lives? But we're talking about peacemakers today. Loving the Lord's character. Loving what His Word reveals. Enforcing yourself to do it. And doing everything you can to project that into other people's lives. Being forceful in your love. Maybe every time I try to hug Bobby, he says, get away from me, you stink but I keep working at it. Of course, he wouldn't do that. This is my dad. Maybe every time I talk to Patricia, she says something kind of ugly to me. I'm going to... Of course not. I'm going to make peace there. In fact, what I'm learning to do, and I want to stress learning, by no means have I reached this in any level of even proficiency, much less perfection, is the nastier somebody is to me, the more I'm going to be kind to them because I'm going to try to make peace where there is no peace, because that is what God does. God is a peacemaker. We are His children if we do that. You want to know how God's a peacemaker? Yeah, we've been working to get there for a long time, huh? Let me quote you some other things about reading them. Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, right? Y'all know that scripture? Oh man, the government's going to be on his shoulder, but of his government there will be no end. It will increase continually. That is the kingdom, his government. He will be called Emmanuel. What's that? God with us. He will be called the Prince of Shalom. In other words, He's going to be the one that is going to govern over Shalom. He's going to be the one that His rule will grow and extend. He's going to be the one to bring peace to the earth. That is Isaiah 9.6. We'll sing it at Christmas. You sing it every Christmas. It would do better if you learned it in the other 11 months of the year so you knew what it meant, right? Zechariah 9 says He's going to proclaim peace not only to us, but to the nations. His peace is going to go out to the nations. He's not just going to do this for Israel. He's going to do it for the world. And His rule will flow from Zion like waters cover the sea. There will be a day when His peace will extend to the earth. Well, Eric, that's great, but you told us something about the earth in John 3.16. Somebody quote John 3.16 to me again. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son Whosoever believes in Him shall not perish. All right, now quote John 3.17. Oh my God. Did you notice a tenth of us could do the next verse? That's because they don't put it on the billboards at the baseball games. He didn't come into the world to condemn it because it stood condemned already. The world, the world, the world. you know what that word is? It's cosmos. Like Kramer. No, I'm kidding, but it is <laughs> cosmos. This means the order in structure on the earth. <laughs> Sanctification's a process. Cosmos. 
What this means is that this earth system, the whole world system, stands condemned. Jesus didn't come to condemn it. It already stands condemned. Jesus came to save it, the cosmos. What was wrong here? There's war. There's division. There's no harmony between man and God. There's no harmony between man and the animal kingdom. There is total chaos and rebellion. Adam was supposed to subdue it, but he didn't. He submitted to it. So God so much loved this world that He right here at the cross is introducing a power into the earth to bring it peace, to change it, to set everything right. He loved the world enough to fix it. He loved the world enough to establish His kingdom on it. He loved the world enough to take what was in heaven and plant it on earth like a seed that would be small but grow and envelop the whole thing. This is the kingdom message. The kingdom message is it hurts when you see lions eat a wildebeest. The kingdom message is it really is not fun to bury people you love. The kingdom message is it hurts when you see injustice and blind eyes and poor. But Jesus is fixing it all and it starts with you, your lives, and your people. You say, but wait a minute. What about the hungry? Do you know how many people are starving in Houston? Do you know how many people are starving in Houston? That's the question. You're God's body. You're members of God's kingdom. You are His hands and His feet. What are you doing? Quit standing back saying, when will God fix it? He drafted you. You are in His employ. You wear His name. You're empowered by His Spirit. You are called in His kingdom. You do something about it. What was Jesus called to do? His very first time He stands up to preach, He reads from Isaiah. I have come to do what? Basically, take care of the afflicted. Open blind eyes, freedom to captives. I've come to do something about what is screwed up on the earth. Oh, that's not a preacher word, but you understood it, didn't you? I've come to fix what is broken. I've come to bring my sense of shalom. God has called us to be peacemakers. Ours is the kingdom of God. We are sons of God when we are peacemakers. That means we are like God when we are fixing what is wrong. That means that's what God is like all of the time. You are His sons when you do it, but He's doing it all. He is fixing the cosmos. And it started with Jesus. Will it end with you? That's the question. Or will you continue His work until He returns? That's what the Gospel's about. Matthew 10, 13 teaches shalom bait, peace in the home. It says when you enter a home, let your peace rest there. In other words, your presence there should help that home begin to recognize and understand how to get everything right with them and God and them and their fellow man. If they will not accept your peace, then you take it with you when you go. What a strange Scripture. That's what it means. You do everything you can to teach people about how to be in harmony with God and with each other. If they will not accept it, shake the dust off your feet and walk on. There are lots that won't. And I want to tell you a, a little nasty secret. More will accept it outside of the present church than will accept it in. Because those inside the present church think they have it all together already. Those outside know they don't. Everybody rails against the Pharisees and Sadducees. Nobody wants to say that there are present Pharisees and Sadducees. And I tell you, there are more than there are real believers because only a few are going to be saved. But even in the Gospels, men like Paul changed within their Phariseeism. There's hope for everybody. I'm not condemning a single person. In John 14:25, Jesus said, My peace I leave with you. 
My peace I leave with you. He gave them something that they could give to the world. A way to know how to let righteousness and peace kiss each other. How to let faithfulness spring up from the earth. He was fixing the planet in the proof within the people. He is fixing the planet in the proof within the people. We free our loved ones and smile and laugh. And the proof is in the people. Romans 16.20 says something very strange. What a paradox. And this is our last Scripture. Romans 16.20 says, And the God of Shalom, the God of peace, will soon crush Satan under your feet. Does that not sound a little bit like an oxymoron? If peace is the absence of hostility, how far are we saying, The God who is absent from hostility will crush the devil's head. God is full of hostility. It's just directed towards the enemy that screwed up the cosmos. He's teaching us how to get back in line with Him and with each other. It's our job to walk in it. And the God who promotes that, who instigates it, who put it as a catalyst to change the world, started His kingdom, His catalyst, and His change in you by putting His in you. And that power will crush Satan under its feet. It's just your job to live it. When I ask you to stand to your feet in just a second, think about crushing the enemy by forcing peace into every situation. Peace comes at a price sometimes, friends. It means that you run the risk of offending somebody. It means that you do what is hard at times. It's a whole lot easier to leave things uncorrected, to leave things unsaid. When Matthew and Cassidy moved here, we determined from the very beginning that there would be peace even if it came through force in all of our lives. That has been our policy and I can tell you it has been hard and it works wonderfully. It is amazing what happens when you put the kingdom principles into work. That's how I know there will not be a church split. That's how I know that we will not end up in failure instead of success because we will do what is difficult to maintain, seek, pursue, force peace. Now, guys, meditate on that word. When Colt said that the 45 was a peacemaker, he meant peace through superior firepower. I'm talking about peace through superior kingdom power. We don't wage world like the we don't wage war like the world does. You slap me, I'm going to love you. You slap me again, I'm going to keep loving you. I'm going to love you until you are ashamed of yourself for slapping me. That is forcing peace. You understand? I'm not talking about being militant. When I was a young man, I could be more militant than anybody in this room. It doesn't help. It doesn't help. You cannot beat the gospel into anybody. If you could, there are some of us that would have fought every day. It doesn't work. Love it into people and be forceful about that. Stand up with Satan under your feet and let's pray.